Hello, welcome back to Sarah Reed Sanderson. We are starting part six, which is bringing our climax to a head and uh, is going to be the second to last section of the book before we are done. Um, again, I just want to say thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy. Chapter 31 Charlotte had hoped that her return to Sanditon from London would raise her spirits. Though it was doubtless unfashionable and, paro and parochial to admit it, she had not formed a good opinion of the place. If pressed, she might have attributed this to Georgiana's ill-treatment, and perhaps the squalor of the poor districts glimpsed from the carriage window. But in truth it was how London made her feel, a person of no consequence, whose daydreams of herself and Sydney Parker were shown in their true light to be nothing more than ridiculous fancy. It seemed humiliatingly obvious to her now that they were two very different people, destined for very different futures. Charlotte? Mary's inquiry startled her out of her despondent idlings. Is something troubling you, my dear? Ever since you returned from London, you've seemed a little discountenanced. With some effort, Charlotte raised a smile. Not at all, although I am certainly in no hurry to return. It struck me as a rather monstrous place. Tom burst into the room before she could say more. Well, my dears, he began. He wore the overexcited expression that Charlotte, like Mary of old, had come to recognize with trepidation. The day of the regatta is almost upon us. Do we stand prepared, Charlotte? In reply, she indicated the long list of tasks she had been working methodically through when her mind wasn't drifting back to what had happened in London. I believe so, she said. The spectator stand is built, Mrs. Ennis is baking enough to feed an army, the hotel is laying in an extra twenty-three barrels, and here I have drawn up the final program. All we need now are some visitors. Oh, they will come, he cried, his eyes darting feverishly between Charlotte and his wife, and rather belying his words. I have not the smallest shred of doubt. By this time tomorrow we shall be thronged with visitors. Thronged, I tell you. Our very future depends on it, does it not, Mary? Mary smiled and laid a calming hand on his arm. She had forgiven him after reading his letter. She could not help herself. She loved Tom too much to be angry with him in his hour of need. Even now, his narrow frame was fairly trembling with nervous anticipation. She was about to impart some soothing words when Diana and Arthur bustled in. "'Sit yourselves down, my dears,' said Diana, with great solemnity. "'We are the bearers of dreadful news. Poor Lady Denham is—' "'No, I cannot say it!' she slumped into a chair, hand pressed to her brow. A dead, finished Arthur indelicately. "'Well, all but.' "'I have had no use of Dr. Fuchs for almost a week,' said Diana. "'He has not left her bedside. By all accounts she will likely be gone by morning.' Silence descended upon the room as each of them considered a sanditon without Lady Denham. Then Tom stood, apparently decided, the fevered light back in his eyes. It was impossible to conceive of what he would do if she died, so therefore she would not die. Bald denial had served Tom Parker very well in the past, and would do so again now. "'My dear Diana,' he said, with every appearance of unshakable confidence, "'I am afraid you must be deceived.' The very idea of Lady Denham dying is impossible. I should be left without a principal investor. At the very least, we will have to cancel the regatta. No, 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 it cannot be. She has an iron constitution. She will outlive us all. 
The words rang out loudly, and Charlotte wondered if she was the only one for whom they sounded as hollow as a cracked bell. But then she caught Mary's anxious expression and knew that she was not. At Sanditon House, Tom and Mary Parker had joined Sir Edward, Esther, and Clara to pay their last respects. Now that Mr. Parker had seen the old lady with his own eyes, his conviction in her certain recovery had faded. When he had come from her bedroom, where she lay so still and uncharacteristically silent, he looked as though he had aged ten years. Dr. Fuchs gathered them together in the drawing room. Without Lady Dunham's inimitable presence, its cold grandeur made it seem even more like a mausoleum than ever. Reverend Hankins had also been summoned, and now stood at the doctor's shoulder, his expression bearing between sorrow and self-importance. "'I regret to say I have reached the limit of my abilities as a physician,' Fuchs said. "'I fear she will not see out the night.' He bowed his head. "'Oh, our poor dear aunt!' said Clara, dabbing at her eyes with her handkerchief. "'Come now, doctor,' said Tom desperately. "'You cannot admit defeat so readily.' But Fuchs only shook his head. Hankin saw his chance and stepped forward, hands fumbling on his Bible. "'Rest assured, I shall be on hand. She is going to a far better place, where our Lord shall welcome her into his loving arms.' "'What a comfort that is,' muttered Esther. "'Well, I had better pay my last respects while I still can,' said Sir Edward, with rather too much nonchalance for the occasion. As he passed Clara, he met her eye, and something passed between them. Esther, who was almost always watching her brother, did not miss it. Mary, understanding that they should leave Lady Dunham's family alone, ushered her husband outside and back into their carriage. The sun was climbing towards its zenith, and he regarded it anxiously. The next time it did so, the regatta would have begun. As though she had read his mind, Mary turned to him. "'I suppose we shall have to postpone it, out of respect.' "'I see no need for that.' His gaze was still trained on the view beyond the carriage window. "'I said it earlier, and I say it again now. Lady Denham will outlive us all.' "'She is gravely ill, Tom. Everyone else can accept it. Why not you?' He said nothing until she reached out to touch his arm. The gesture of affection seemed to unlock something inside him at last. He turned and reached for her hands. "'Don't you see, Mary? She cannot die and leave me without a principal investor.' Mary pulled her hands away. "'She is on her deathbed, and your only concern is what it will mean for your town?' Her voice had hardened, and Tom, hearing it, only grew more frantic. "'No, no, you misunderstood me.' My, con my concern is for you and the children. Without her investment, I should soon face bankruptcy. Our house, our security, everything would be at risk. I'm simply speaking frankly. Mary, as we agreed, I would. Inwardly, he begged her to relent, to reassure him and understand, as she always did. But her reply, when it came, was curt. I see, she said, and then turned away. Clara and Esther were sitting outside Lady Dunham's bedroom, waiting for Edward. Esther was unable to shake off her disquiet. The look exchanged by Edward and Clara had been secretive, yes, and that was bad enough, but it was also knowing, and that worried her more. It was Clara who finally broke the silence. Edward is taking his time. I cannot think what is keeping him, given conversation with our aunt has become so uh, somewhat one-sided. 
"'He is showing due respect to a dying woman,' said Esther reprovingly. "'You might consider doing likewise.' Clara turned to her with a sneer that quite spoilt her doll-like prettiness. "'What has she ever done to merit my respect?' "'And yet she took you in when no one else would? "'She fed you, housed you, clothed you, "'despite you being the most obscure of relations?' "'Clara laughed. "'I cannot be that obscure, "'else you and Edward would hardly have been so threatened by my claim.' "'Do not flatter yourself. "'You were never a threat, merely an irritant. "'I take comfort in knowing that once our aunt is buried, "'we shall never think of you again.' "'I cannot entirely agree with you there, my dear.' "'although the two of you will hardly think of me in the same way.' "'There were questions Esther was burning to ask, "'and answers Clara clearly wanted to give, "'but she managed to resist. "'I will not be goaded into another quarrel. "'The source of our enmity is finished. "'There never was a will. "'All that she has will be divided between us, "'and this whole miserable business will be ended. "'Thank God.' "'She stood, but so did Clara, "'the latter smiling strangely.' "'Oh, you poor dear thing,' she said, her mouth twisting so she didn't laugh. "'I felt certain Edward would have told you by now. "'I did not think the two of you kept secrets from each other.' "'She widened her blue eyes. "'A cold hand clutched Esther's heart. "'What are you talking about?' "'Well, I suppose you have a right to know. "'Contrary to what you have heard, there was a will, "'but its contents were demonstrably absurd.' None of us would have received a penny. It would not do, so Edward and I took the only sensible action available to us. We burnt it. We agreed a half-share was a far more agreeable outcome. Esther took a step towards her. There is not a chance Edward would ever conspire with you. He regards you with absolute contempt. And yet, Charlotte spoke over her, Clara spoke over her, there is no way to feign the kind of fondness she showed me that night. Blood began to thrum loudly in Esther's ears. "'You are lying,' she said, but the words were little more than a whisper. Clara's lips curled into a triumphant smile. "'I was lying, with him, on the floor of her ladyship's drawing-room, if you must know. I admit it was a fleeting encounter, but he was touchingly eager, like a little boy. Has that been your experience, too?' Emotion took Esther over. She raised her hand and slapped Clara across the face as hard as she could. For an instant, she looked as shocked as Esther herself was, but then she began to smile. It was that knowing look again. Oh! Clara didn't bother to hide her glee. Could it be that you have never given yourself to him? Small wonder he was so keen to ha take his pleasure elsewhere. Esther's fury spent, the truth of Clara's words only added to her sudden and terrible faintness. She gripped the arm of a chair to stop herself simply falling down. "'You are a worthless whore,' she managed to say. "'A whore?' said Clara, condescending, consideringly. "'Possibly. But worthless? Quite the reverse.' With that, she left Esther alone, as usual, waiting for Edward. It was not only Lady Denham who suffered in her bedchamber that morning. At Mrs. Griffith's lodging house, Miss Lamb could not leave hers either, or rather, would not. She lay in the darkness, professing that she could not bear the bright light of day. Unlike Lady Denham, it was not a physical ailment that so afflicted her, but a depression of spirits that seemed hopeless. Her guardian climbed the stairs as he had for the last two days without success. 
still no improvement this morning, I am afraid, murmured Mrs. Griffiths as she led the way. I begin to fear she is beyond salvation. Georgiana, she tapped on the door. Mr. Parker is here to see you again. Send him away, came the inevitable reply, though Sydney was at least heartened by the strength of her voice. Mrs. Griffiths opened the door a few inches. The air of the room was hot and stale. I wish only to talk, Georgiana, he said into the half-dark. I am concerned for you. No, you are not. Her voice was strangely expressionless. You have never seen me as anything other than an inconvenience, so why affect compassion now? He hovered in the doorway, not quite brave enough to enter and incur further wrath. Georgiana, I am all too aware that I have fallen short as your guardian, but please believe me that I am sincere in my desire to make amends. Her voice, when it came, remained flat and unmoved, as though all her liveliness of character had been siphoned away. Men like you cannot change, she said. You may leave me now. As he descended the stairs, he reflected that he would rather she had been angry with him. He was almost at the door when Charlotte was admitted. He felt his heart lift at the sight of her. Miss mm-hmm. Hayward, he said warmly. Mr. Parker, how did you find her? He shook his head. I dare say we'll have more luck than I. If you don't mind, I will wait for you. Of course. I am at a loss, he said, when they were walking back towards Trafalgar House. She seems to think I am an irredeemable asshole. Monster. And that strikes you as an unfair assessment? He looked sharply at her, and then saw the sparkle in her eyes and laughed. They were not yet accustomed to the new form their acquaintance had taken. Where once they were adversaries, there was now something like friendship between them. He wasn't entirely sure how to navigate these mysterious new waters. You must be patient with her, Charlotte went on. For a young woman in love, every minute spent apart is... She stopped and colored, turning her face away. Well, you know how sharp the agony of separation can be, and Georgiana has no hope of being reunited with her love. Sidney sighed. He hadn't noticed anything. I expect you are right, Miss Hayward although fate has a way of surprising even the most jaded of us. Though she suspected he was talking of his old love, Eliza, Charlotte smiled bravely. You are not nearly as unfeeling as you pretend. If that is the case, I will thank you to keep it to yourself. I have a reputation to uphold. Her heart fluttered as he smiled at her. It was more open than any he had yet given her. Your secret is safe with me, she managed to say. She did not think she was imagining this new intimacy between them, but she had not imagined how Sidney had looked at Mrs. Campion at the ball in London either. She had not been able to forget the sight of their heads so close together in the ballroom, and the admiring whispers that had greeted the spectacle of such a handsome couple. Indeed, she had dreamt of it more than a couple of times since, waking with a beating heart and a rising gorge. Her great comfort was that Sidney had not uttered the widow's name since, at least not in her presence. Mrs. Campion was a hundred or more miles away, and there Charlotte hoped she'd stay. After Sidney had left her, Tom requested that Charlotte should join him in his study. She was disheartened to see him pacing the floor when she got there. 
his face as agitated as she had ever seen it. Since he had returned from Sanditon House, he had apparently not sat down, even for luncheon. He turned to her and gestured to the list they had been compiling since the idea for the regatta had struck. So we will start with the sandcastle competition at eleven, followed by the fisherman's boat race. Charlotte had held up her pencil. Did we not say that the fisherman's race would be? Oh, yes, that's right. That's it. Yes, quite right, my dear. He pushed his hands through his hair. So after a respectable break for luncheon comes the fisherman's boat race. And then we will end the day with the men's amateur rowing. Splendid. There is something for everyone to enjoy. All that we need now are some visitors. He laughed, but the sound was strangulated, his eyes on the empty street below the window. His fear that it would remain so tomorrow was palpable. Charlotte could almost smell it in the room. A tumult in the hallway revealed itself to be the children as they ran in. Papa, Papa, sang song little Jenny. Uncle Sidney is here, exclaimed Alicia, triumphant to have announced it first. Not to be outdone, Jenny grasped her father's legs. And he's brought a pretty lady with him. Charlotte's heart plummeted. She followed Tom and the children into the drawing room, where Mary was already welcoming the new arrival. It was Sidney who drew her eye first, as he always did, but he did not turn to smile at her, as he had just an hour or two earlier when they returned from seeing Georgiana. Now he was entirely occupied with looking at another. Tom, he said, you remember Miss Campion? Although, of course, you knew her as Miss Eliza Sterling. Mary, who had greeted them already, widened her eyes at Tom. Sidney has invited Mrs. Campion down for the regatta. Her eyes strayed to Charlotte. Isn't that a wonderful surprise? Tom went forward to take the new arrival's hand. Absolutely wonderful. Welcome. You are most kind, said Mrs. Campion. She had a low, thrilling voice, as though designed to encourage men to lean closer. I must say, the pair of you have barely altered since I last saw you. Though Charlotte could not help but inspect the interloper with grim fascination, from her fashionable hair and delicate features to the fine silk of her gown, Eliza Campion did not glance at Charlotte once. This snub, intended or not, made her feel like a girl in smock and ribbons by comparison, no kind of rival at all. Without anyone noticing, a miserable Charlotte slipped away. At Sanditon House, Edward emerged from his aunt's bedchamber. He had paid no respects, last or otherwise, and was in fact smirking. I am no Dr. Fuchs, he said to the waiting Esther in some thick approximation of a Prussian accent, but I do not think she is long for this world. Esther did not dignify him with a response, only sweeping past him with a look of disgust. Her aunt's room was almost in darkness, the heavy curtains closed, and only a few candles lit. Esther could smell something, slightly rotten and sweet, and wondered if it was the scent of approaching death. She did not feel grief for the old woman. She had never liked her aunt, and it would be disingenuous to pretend affection now, at the end. That would make her no better than Clara Brereton, and, well, no better than Edward, too. She hated to think ill of him. She had long ago trained herself to ignore his less attractive traits, but that was before. Only a fool could think kindly of him at this moment, 
and Esther would no longer be a fool. Not for him. She approached the bed, wherein her aunt seemed to have shrunk yet further, her form small and rather vulnerable, surrounded as it was by a mountain of pillows. Even in the low light, her skin was terribly pale and waxen. I... I know what I am supposed to say, Esther said softly, watching for a flicker in the old lady's face. There was nothing, and it emboldened her to go on. I am supposed to talk about the fondness I bear you, about your fine and noble qualities, how your passing shall leave me wretched with grief. Well, I cannot weep crocodile tears like everybody else. This house has heard too many lies. You deserve the truth. You should know there is not a person alive who holds you in the least affection. Not Clara, not Edward, not me. To my eternal regret, we cared only for your fortune. I have realized too late what a foul, corrupting cancer your money is. It never brought you the, hap the least happiness. It turned you into a cruel, miserly old woman who will die unloved and unmourned. And it turned Edward... My Edward! Her voice cracked. She took a deep breath sat down next to the bed and reached for her aunt's hand. The skin was as dry as paper, the bones under it as fragile as a bird's. <sighs> the truth is, he has betrayed both of us. He betrayed us when he and Clara lay with each other on your drawing room floor. He betrayed us when he and Clara conspired to burn your will and share your fortune. My life lies in ruins and your money is the cause. I hope you will find happiness in heaven because this earth has become a living hell. She bowed her head and allowed a single tear of pity for both of them to fall upon the silk coverlet. Once the appropriate greetings had been made at Trafalgar House, Sidney suggested that he show Mrs. Campy and Sanditon's beach. Her presence had affected him more strongly than he had anticipated. He wanted them to be alone together. "'I still can't quite believe you're here,' he said now, as they walked slowly in the direction of the beach." It did not occur to him that he was retracing the steps he'd taken with Charlotte just a few hours earlier. Oh, I'm quite real, she said teasing, said Eliza teasingly. Flesh and blood, see? She held out a narrow white hand for him, and he took it briefly. The town looks just as I remember it, she went on, looking about her with a keenly appraising eye. Sidney paused. At first glance, perhaps, but well... It is only to be expected that things have altered after all this time. I hardly suppose either of us are entirely the same people that we were. She turned to him in surprise. Are we not? I believe I am still the same girl I ever was. He thought back to the exchanges he'd had that morning, first with his ward and then with Charlotte. He was not quite willing to relinquish the notion of himself as someone who might be capable of change, of evolving. "'But who is to say that if I am still the same man?' he said, more seriously than he intended. "'You are,' Eliza replied easily. "'I knew it the moment I saw you in London.' He did not know if he was reassured or frustrated by this. Then he looked at her again, the face he had loved for more than half his life, and realized it hardly mattered. "'I am so very glad you accepted my invitation.' I wasn't entirely sure you would see the appeal of a provincial regatta. Under the pretense of moving aside for a gen an old gentleman, she allowed the silk of her dress to brush his hip. Oh, I am not here for the regatta, Sidney, she said softly. I am here for you. Chapter 32 
The morning of the regatta dawned, and then, to Tom Parker's consternation, proceeded to wear on fast. At ten o'clock, the town remained stubbornly hushed. Bunting strung across the street lifted unadmired in the warm breeze, and stallholders chatted amongst themselves, their untouched wares covered with cloths to keep off the flies. It was all anticipation, with none of the activity that should follow. Tom, leading the Parker clan through the town, along with Babington and Crow, was growing flustered. A large banner announcing the Grand Sanditon Regatta seemed to mock him from above. "'I must say, I had hoped we'd have more visitors by now,' he said. "'Perhaps some people have gone straight to the river,' said Mary. "'The men's race is not till four, put in Charlotte. "'There is bound to be a good-sized crowd by then.' The words came out more irritably than she intended. She had hoped the regatta would prove a distraction, but so far she could think of nothing but Sydney and Mrs. Campion. "'Yes, yes, I'm sure you are right,' said Tom. "'Although I do have concerns about the weather, those clouds look rather ominous, don't you think?' "'No one minds a little rain,' said Mary, in her usual placatory tones. "'It's a regatta. Getting wet is to be expected.' Babington, who was with Crow at the head of the party, was no less preoccupied than Charlotte. "'I do wonder if we should have done at least a little preparation for the race,' he said idly, his mind elsewhere as his eyes roved around in search of a particular head. "'Ots,' said Crow, as he took a generous swig from a hip flask. "'A gentleman does not practice. It is tantamount to cheating. Why do you keep looking around?' Not keeping an eye out for that Esther Denham creature, I hope. Heavens no, said Babington unconvincingly. I, I have called off that particular hunt. It was a futile pursuit. Crow gave him a skeptical look and handed over the flask. Thank God. We've already lost Sydney to the siren's call. I'm damned if I'm going to lose you as well. Edward awoke with a start, quite disorientated. Bright sunlight streamed into a, far, into a room far bigger than his bedroom. It was his aunt's drawing room, he suddenly realized, and then he startled again. Esther was standing, watching him, just a few feet away. "'Is it over, then?' he said blearily. "'La tante is morte?' "'Not yet,' she regarded him strangely. He couldn't read her expression at all. It was disquieting. If I had known it was going to be this drawn out, I would have slept in my own bed, he said, feeling disapproved of always. Feeling disapproved of always made him petulant. At that moment, Dr. Fuchs rushed in, followed by a dazed-looking Clara. Quite unexpectedly, a short while ago, your aunt's fever broke, said Fuchs excitedly. She is now able to sit up and talk, I'm bisschen. It is entirely possible that she might re yet recover. Edward stood and briefly met Clara's eye. I, I am quite lost for words. Clara was quicker. You are a miracle worker, doctor. Realizing the doctor was expecting a response from him, and that Esther was also watching him beadily, Edward belatedly strode over and shook the man's hand. They found Lady Dunham sitting up in bed, propped up by the usual multitude of cushions and pillows. The canny gleam in her eye was back, 
it was clear that while her illness had ravaged her bodily, it had had little effect on her character. "'Words cannot express our relief, aunt,' said Edward with an unconvincing smile. "'We have been praying for you,' said Clara, not to be outdone. "'We have kept up a constant vigil.' Lady Denham pursed her lips. "'I am touched, but console yourselves. I found dying highly disagreeable. I have no intention of repeating the experience.' "'although it must be said there is nothing like an imminent demise to focus the mind.' "'Oh, so, aunt.' "'The lady paused and looked hard at each of the three of them in turn. "'I have always found your ham-fisted attempts to grasp my fortune faintly endearing, "'but I had, I had underestimated the fathomless depths of your venality.' "'There was a pause. It was Edward who recovered the quickest this time.' "'Aunt, you need to rest a while. Your fever has left you confused.' "'I am anything but. Like a phoenix, I am rising from the ashes, unlike the remains of my last will and testament.' Clara and Edward both visibly paled. Esther clapped her hand over her mouth in shock. She had been hurt, after all. "'Like your miserable hearts,' continued Lady Denham. "'They are blackened beyond redemption.' "'It, it, it was Clara,' cried Edward. I did all that I could to stop her, aunt. Liar, Clara said with, vine, with venom. Silence, both of you, you pathetic vipers. You will neither of you ever set foot across my threshold again, Sir Edward Denham, from this moment you are disowned. As for you, Miss Clara Brereton, you'll be on the next coach back to London. You should know that I have summoned my solicitor, and from this day forth the sole beneficiary of my will shall be Esther. What? Esther was stunned. Needless to say, I will also be laying a new floor in my drawing-room. It seems the old one has been indelibly stained. Satisfied with her performance, Lady Denham folded her hands over each other and closed her eyes. They were dismissed, two of them, it seemed, permanently. As the door was closed peremptorily behind them by a servant, Edward turned to Clara, real hatred burning in his eyes. "'Why would you tell her? What were you thinking?' It wasn't me. Why would I? Then how did she know? How else could she possibly? Esther interrupted him. It was me, she said flatly. I told her every last detail. It was just as Clara described it to me. I thought she had a right to know. Edward was speechless, but Clara managed to raise a bitter smile. Bravo, then, Esther. It looks like you won. But Esther was still looking at her brother as she began to walk away. Her face twisted in pain. Nobody won. Edward caught up with her on the drive, grabbing her roughly by the arm. What on earth possessed you? To betray your own brother? She shook him off. You wish to talk of betrayal? I had the situation in hand. If you could only have trusted me instead of taking the word of that scheming bitch. You were scheming with her. I did what I had to. It was all for our benefit. We would have been left with nothing. We? I would have seen it to it that you were taken care of. Of course I would, just as you have no wish to see me flung out without a penny now. He stopped. Something had occurred to him. It is all right, Esther. It is not too late. You can still rectify this. Just tell Lady Denham that you had it all wrong, that you you misconstrued the situation. It was all Clara's doing. I have been wronged just as you have. Esther shook her head in disbelief. Even now, that is all you care about? 
the wretched money? Of course not. This is about us securing our future. Don't you see? Her voice wobbled on the last word, but she swallowed down the tears that threatened. There is no us. There is no future. You have seen to that. With that, she walked away. She didn't look back. Yes, girl. It was nearly eleven o'clock, and, though the town could not yet be called busy, the fine weather was beginning to draw some to the beach. The much-vaunted sandcastle competition was chiefly to thank for this, with dozens of children intent on their creations, watched over by doting mothers, fathers, and nursemaids. Sydney was walking with Eliza along the shoreline. Perhaps it was the new day, or the happy children in the vicinity, but a new ease and familiarity had sprung up between them. The years they had been apart seemed to have contracted to nothing. At the last regatta I attended, they raced Arab stallions, Eliza said. The one before that featured eight clippers in full sail. For sheer exhilaration, though, what could compare to a sandcastle competition? She gave Sydney a mischievous look. Ah, but these are no ordinary sandcastles, he said, unwilling to join in any mockery of Sanditon, however gentle. Look at this one, for instance. Just ahead of them was a barefoot woman who, as they drew closer, revealed herself to be Charlotte. She was helping the Parker children with their own enormous castle, laughing easily as Henry put sandy hands on her dress. Sidney found himself smiling at the pretty picture they made, the child so appealing, and Charlotte blooming with health. As fresh and pink as a rose, he thought idly. "'What handsome construction!' he called. "'Might I assume you're the architect, Miss Haywood?' She turned, and he thought her happy expression faltered at the sight of him. But then she looked down at the sand, and he told himself he'd imagined it. "'Oh, no,' she said. "'That would be Jenny. I am merely a laborer.' "'Well, it is a fine piece of work. If it doesn't win, there is no justice.' She met his eye then, and he felt obscurely guilty, though she smiled brightly enough. "'Well done, children,' said Eliza, rather late, and he tore his gaze from Charlotte's. Next to her wholesome charm, Eliza was an exotic bloom, elegant and rather formal. He shook the comparison away. After wishing the children luck, they went on their way, and, for the first time, Sidney was at a loss for what to say next.' "'Who was? Who did you say that girl was?' Eliza said eventually. "'Miss Haywood. She is a guest of my brother's and Mary's.' "'And she helps with the children?' he frowned. "'Well, amongst other things.' "'She's a rather sweet little thing,' Eliza said. Her tone was somewhat dismissive. He sensed her turn to study him, and the odd unease he'd felt earlier returned.' Diana and Arthur were walking through the town in a state of disagreement over Arthur's fitness to row that afternoon when a grand carriage of the very first order rolled smoothly past them, leaving in its wake a hubbub of excitement and speculation as to whom it might contain. Those who were already in attendance looked to each other triumphantly. They had chosen right if Sanditon could attract such people. The coach came to a halt not far from the curious Parker siblings, and they watched with great interest as two bewigged footmen 
jumped down and opened the door, putting up their arms to help out three arrestingly fashionable ladies. One in particular stood out, not only for her erect and elegant bearing, but her air of comfortable entitlement. Diana, quite forgetting her argument with Arthur, had observed all this with great intensity, and now let out a gasp. She poked her brother with a sharp elbow. "'Do you realize who that is?' she hissed. He peered closer. "'I'm sure I don't know. When ladies are rigged out in their hats and parasols and lace whatnots, they all look the same to me. Though that one does rather look like Lady Worcester.' "'That's because it is Lady Worcester,' said Diana reverently. With great swiftness, given their usual perambulatory care, Diana and Arthur hurried to the beach where Tom was awarding prizes for the sandcastle competition. When Diana announced the new arrival, Tom started so violently he almost lost his footing in the soft sand. Lady Worcester, are you quite sure? Diana raised an eyebrow. Had I the least doubt, the lavishness of her dress and carriage would have confirmed it. But why did she not alert us, alert us to her arrival? We should have been there to welcome her. He rushed away, a determined smile already painted on, one hand twitching, ready to hail the guest who might be about to reverse his fortunes. Lady Worcester, he could be heard muttering to himself as he went, we must leave nothing to chance, or every whim must be indulged. If we can secure her patronage, we will be rendered fashionable at a stroke. Charlotte, amused and relieved for Tom in equal measure, turned to Diana. Who is this lady? My dear, she's quite notorious. London society positively revolves around her. It is a well-known fact that she and the Prince Regent are. She paused, searching for a delicate turn of phrase. Simpatico? offered Arthur with a wink. Diana tittered. To say the least, unwilling Unwilling to miss anything, she turned and sped after Tom, Arthur and Charlotte following close behind. They caught up with him close to the hotel. The street outside it was now teeming with a class of people Sanditon did not generally see. Most of them were already holding champagne glasses. Tom, spotting Lady Worcester in the Malay, approached her almost at a canter, bowing as he did, a peculiar spectacle that successfully caught her attention. "'My lady, a thousand welcomes,' he cried. "'I beg your forgiveness for missing your arrival. "'Mr. Tom Parker,' he bowed again. "'We are greatly honored, and you will not regret venturing to Sanditon. "'As you shall see, we have quite the finest situation on the south coast. "'The seawater and the breezes are—' "'Lady Worcester waved him away. "'Oh, hush, never mind all that.' "'She was already looking past him to someone else. "'If I gave a fig about the sea, I would have gone to Brighton.' I'm here to continue my conversation with Miss Haywood. She moved a couple of people aside with her fan. As they locked eyes, Charlotte was flooded with belated recognition. Here was her friend from Mrs. Maudsley's library. Susan! she exclaimed, before she could check herself. Charlotte, I have been so looking forward to renewing our acquaintance. She came forward and took Charlotte's hands, her smile warm and genuine. As she turned Charlotte round to display her to the grand entourage, who promptly burst into fawning applause, Tom could only stand gaping in astonishment. One o'clock had come and gone, and the crowds were beginning to drift towards the river. In close step behind the Parkers were Lady Worcester and Charlotte. The former's impressive retinue followed in their wake, a magnificent flock of silk and lace and self-assurance. Charlotte was slightly out of breath, 
having related to Lady Worcester all that had happened since they had last met at the latter's insistence. So, she said now, counting on her gloved fingers, the lady of the town is on her deathbed, and the heartsick heiress is taken to her bed. How thrilling! But more important than any of this, does a certain person yet know that you are in love with him? Charlotte, colouring instantly, looked about them to check who might have overheard. Though she couldn't see Sidney, Mrs. Campion herself was not far behind. "'I fear you are mistaken, my lady,' she said, mortified. "'I was not—am not—' "'Susan, please, I am never wrong when it comes to matters of the heart.' Even if it were true, he is now spoken for. Lady Worcester curled her lip. Oh, I know all about Mrs. C. She must be the wealthiest widow in the country, not to mention the most elegant. I can see why you would find her a dispiriting rival. She caught sight of Charlotte's despondent expression and leant in closer. But she will have a chink in her armor. We just need to find it. She stopped and turned. Mrs. Campion, she called. I have been longing to meet you. I've heard so much about you. Charlotte could bear no more. She hurried away down the hill and was excessively relieved to see young Stringer waiting for her. Like a figure from a much simpler world, he was smiling eagerly. Miss Haywood, I I wondered if I might persuade you to take a walk, unless, of course, now is not a... She took his arm before he could finish and steered him down the hill. Now is the perfect time. I need to make sure everything stands ready at the starting line. Perhaps you could accompany me? When she glanced behind her, missing young Stringer's smile of triumph, Lady Worcester and Mrs. Campion were deep in conversation. It looks like the regatta is going to be a success, young Stringer was saying, oblivious to her agitation, and that it is in large part down to you. You have put so much work into it. In truth, I am glad I have been glad of the distraction. Distraction from what? My own thoughts, I suppose. What kind of thoughts? It is difficult to say. Perhaps you will find me a more sympathetic listener than you might imagine. It could even be that you and I share the same thoughts. She missed another adoring look. I doubt it. You are far too sensible to form such a misguided and futile attachment. Why should it be futile, Miss Haywood? For all you know, your feelings are repaid five times over. I allowed myself to believe it for the briefest of moments, but I cannot deny the evidence of my own eyes. No matter, there is nothing to be done. You were right, Mr. Stringer. You are a sympathetic listener, indeed. She patted his arm and moved away, blind to the disappointment in his face. Think nothing of it, miss, he said quietly, too low for her to hear. Meanwhile, the Parker brothers were in the middle of their own discussion of the opposite sex as they walked. "'What news of Miss Lamb, Sidney?' said Arthur. "'She is notable by her absence.' "'I fear she still refuses to leave her room. "'I do not know what is to be done.' "'Tom was scarcely listening, intent as he was on his most important guest. "'I am as fond of Charlotte as anyone,' he said almost to himself. "'But I cannot fathom Lady Worcester's fascination.' "'Sidney allowed his gaze to rest on Charlotte, "'up ahead with of them with young Stringer.' Most young women choose their opinions according to the fashion, so they become quite interchangeable. Miss Haywood not only has opinions of her own, she is unafraid to voice them. Just as he said this, she caught his eye and smiled. But Tom was gesturing towards a quite different woman now. 
And what of Miss Campion? I cannot believe you find her interchangeable. Indeed, no. She is equally singular. I should say so, said Tom admiringly, though whether for her character or her fortune was not clear. She is a lady of many fine qualities, not least of which is that, following the untimely departure of Mr. Campion, she is once more at liberty to wed. I think you are getting a little ahead of yourself, Tom. Sidney found himself looking at Charlotte again. All I know is that since you last returned from London, you have seemed more alive than you have in years. Tom bent to pick up little Henry, who was pulling at his breeches, and Arthur turned confidingly to Sidney. It is funny. For years growing up, all I knew of my brother Sidney was that he had been driven to the West Indies by a broken heart, that a woman named Eliza had broken off your engagement to marry someone wealthy, and you had been driven half mad. Sidney sighed. What is your point, Arthur? I suppose what I am saying is, I admire your spirit of forgiveness. That is all. If it were me, I do not think I could bring myself to trust her again. Well, I am not you, Arthur, he replied, almost without thinking. Eliza, seeing the two men looking at her, threw Sidney a pretty smile. As if Georgiana's suffering could not be worse, she had... On a day when everyone in Sanditon was out of doors enjoying themselves, been visited by Mr. Hankins, who had taken it upon himself to read her educative, educative passages from the Bible. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest, he intoned now. Shall I continue, my child? I would sooner be crucified. Now come, Miss Lamb, he blustered. I do not doubt the depths of your suffering, but it hardly compares to the agonies of the cross. A knock at the door made them both look up. Arthur Parker showed himself in, his impressive bulk carried surprisingly lightly. Forgive the interruption, Mr. Hankins, he said brightly, but I urgently need Miss Lamb's assistance with a matter pertaining to the regatta, that is to say, a regatta matter, he laughed, pleased with his own joke. Of what nature? But Arthur's deception, for it was that, had not been thoroughly planned. Er, um, he stammered, whether, um, that is to say, the, um, duck race. Mr. Hankins, as confused as Arthur himself, shook his head. I am afraid you find us at an inopportune moment. We have only just started with Joshua. "'So there are still thirty-three books yet to go.' "'Georgiana, however, had gone to the window. "'Beyond the heavy net curtains of Mrs. Griffith's Chinese parlour, "'she could see that the sky was a peerless blue. "'Bereft as she was, the choice between leaving the house "'and sitting with Mr. Hankins for another moment "'was no choice at all. "'May I let you in to a little secret, Miss Lamb?' Arthur said when they were out on the street, a rather scandalized Mr. Hankins left to himself in his Bible. There is no duck race. It was a ruse. Arthur puffed up his chest proudly. He could not match Miss Georgiana Lamb for pride, though. Few could. She drew herself up. You can leave now, she said loftily. I have no further need of your company. Come, Miss Lamb, said Arthur unperturbed. Now that we have sprung you from your quarters, we might as well enjoy the regatta. Do you suppose there will be a cake stall? I do hope so. 
He offered his arm, which she refused with a withering scowl. She didn't turn back towards her lodging house, though, but towards the hubbub of the regatta. As far as Arthur was concerned, this was a victory of sorts. He bought a bag of winkles in celebration. They hadn't gone too much further when she rounded on him again. I hate you for dragging me out here. Everyone is staring at me, judging me, the ruined woman. He swallowed a winkle. To be fair, Miss Lamb, people have always stared at you. I'd have thought you'd be used to it by now. You are beautiful and brown, around these parts that's rarer than a sheep with two heads. As for the judging, no one holds you accountable. You were deceived, that is all, and you are far from ruined. You have your whole life ahead of you. Sidney found Charlotte next to the starting line, where she was counting and checking the oars laid out on the grass of the river bank. "'It is a little over an hour until the race, Mr. Parker,' she said when she saw him. To her frustration, her eyes were drawn, and now lingered, on his rolled-up sleeves, or rather the strong, bare arms they revealed. "'I am letting all the competitors know.' She turned to go, but he called after her. His eyes were soft when she met them. "'Well?' "'What do you think?' he said. "'Do I look ready to you, Miss Haywood?' "'I am no expert.' "'Neither am I, regrettably. "'This is the first time I've picked up an oar in years.' "'He bent to choose a pair of oars "'and carried them over to the Parker boat. "'I am sure it will all come back to you,' she said. "'Sidney looked thoughtfully at the water. "'I wonder. "'A man cannot step into the same river twice. "'Have you ever heard that?' "'He jumped nimbly into the boat.' Charlotte watched him from the riverbank. "'For he is not the same man, and it is not the same river, Heraclitus.' He looked up at her admiringly. "'Of course you would know that. Here, I need a second person to balance the boat. Would you mind?' He reached for her without waiting for an answer. "'I'm not sure if—oh!' Oh. But he had already picked her up as though she weighed nothing. "'Careful,' he said gently. "'Just sit here.' He put the oars in position and rowed a couple of strong strokes so that they moved away from the bank. When they were clear, he let them drift. "'Are you all right, Mr. Parker?' she said, when she had gathered her wits. "'You seem rather preoccupied.' He paused and then looked directly at her. "'May I ask you something, Miss Haywood? Why, when I have a chance of happiness at last, will my restless mind not accept the fact?' "'With Mrs. Campion, you mean?' He looked out at the water. I have convinced myself that I was destined to remain alone, an outlier. I'm convinced my, I'd convinced myself I was ill-suited to matrimony. What if I was right? She felt uncomfortably torn. I don't believe that to be true, she said eventually. Loneliness seems a terrible price to pay for caution, does it not? Instead of answering, he leant forward, his arm on hers. Could you perhaps take up your oars, like this? He moved her hands into the correct position. His skin was warm, and it made her breath come shallow. She dared not look up at him, but felt his eyes on her. Swallowing nervously, she began to row, feeling the boat respond and move with purpose through the water again. "'You should feel it here,' he said, gesturing to his abdomen. "'Yes,' she murmured, her blushes deepening. "'I, I feel it.' A voice, tight with displeasure, called Sidney's name and broke the spell between them. It was Mrs. Campion, standing on the river bank, watching them, her eyes narrowed with suspicion. Chapter 33 The riverside was by now alive with activity and anticipation. 
The tents that had been erected for the visitors were full to bursting. Tom watched proudly as the pop of another champagne cork was heard. The bright sun above gilded them all. Do you see, my dear? he said. His face looked years younger since Lady Worcester's carriage had rolled into town. It is as if London had been has been emptied and the entire Beaumont transported here. Yes, I am pleased for you, said Mary stiffly. She had not forgiven him yet. I know how much it means to you. Charlotte had reunited with Lady Worcester, whose companions had taken up a prime position close to the finish line. She had not yet told Susan what had passed between her and Sydney in the boat, though her blood still thrummed with the encounter. "'Mr. Mullen, Lord Grasmere,' cried Lady Worcester, beckoning some new arrivals over. "'How good of you to come!' "'Are all these people here at your invitation, ma'am?' said Charlotte wonderingly, after they had been greeted. "'Not necessarily, but a social circle is like the cog of a clock. Once you set one in motion, the others are bound to follow. "'How did you persuade them all to come?' "'Never underestimate the potency of the new.' Once Lady Harper learned I was visiting a resort she had never heard of, she determined to follow. Then Mr. Fowler followed her, Mrs. Dowling followed him, and so forth. No one wants to be left behind. It is a fate worse than death for those who aspire to be au courant. "'You have made the the day a success,' said Charlotte. "'I hardly know how to thank you.' Lady Worcester dismissed this with a shake of her elegant head. There is no need to thank me. I came here to enjoy your company. At that moment, their gaze was drawn towards Sidney and Mrs. Campion, who were watching, who were walking towards the rower's tent. Lady Worcester smiled and bent towards Charlotte. And I think we can safely say we have found Mrs. Campion's Achilles' heel. Oh? Charlotte looked questioningly at her. You! she replied. Mrs. Campion arrived, Sidney just behind her, Charlotte did not know what to do with herself. May we join you? What is the topic of conversation, of discussion? Lady Worcester raised an eyebrow at Charlotte. Miss Hayward and I were just discussing marriage. Charlotte looked at her feet. What is your opinion of marriage, Mr. Parker? Lady Worcester persisted. Sidney shifted on his feet, as patently uncomfortable as Charlotte. I cannot speak of it with any authority. "'What about you, Miss Haywood?' said Mrs. Campion. Unlike Lady Worcester, she did not smile. "'You are of a marriageable age. It must be much on your mind.' Charlotte wished she might disappear. "'There seems little point in considering marriage until you found someone you'd wish to marry.' Mrs. Campion let out a brittle laugh. <laughs> "'Oh, come. There must be a boy in your village who has caught your eye.' "'And why should Charlotte be limited to her village?' said Lady Worcester. I always think it helps to share a common background, that's all. Miss Hayward is hardly likely to find a kindred spirit in this company. And why not? I just imagine she must find all our London talk unspeakably tedious. Wouldn't you agree, Sidney? For a moment no one spoke. Then Sidney attempted a light-hearted smile. I have no doubt she'd rather be sitting quietly reading Heraclitus somewhere. He tried to catch Charlotte's eye, but Mrs. Campion broke into peals of laughter. Heraclitus, you are wicked, Sidney. That is certainly not going to help her find a husband. Those who had overheard joined her in laughing, though Lady Worcester frowned. 
Charlotte looked around at them all, these fashionable people she didn't know or understand, and flushed to the roots of her hair. "'You are quite right, Mrs. Campion,' she managed to say. "'I am a farmer's daughter who reads books. What could I possibly have in common with anyone here? Excuse me.' She turned and walked away, but had not got far when Sydney caught up with her. They were out of sight of the others now, obscured by one of the tents. "'Miss Haywood.' Would you excuse me? The race is about to start, and I must... Just for a moment. She stopped, and the sight of him made her suddenly furious. Well? I wanted to say that I, I hope you were not too offended by Mrs. Campion. It was meant only in jest. She raised her chin. Is that all I am to you? A source of amusement? To her surprise, he looked quite distraught at the thought. No! You are... You are... Forgive me. She shook her head. There is nothing to forgive. On the contrary, you have done me a great service. I am no longer in any doubt as to how you regard me. Miss Haywood. What? Her voice shook. She was quite desperate to be alone. What is it you want from me? What do I want? He stopped and considered, his face as troubled as she'd seen it, but she could bear no more. Please, be kind enough to leave me now. As Charlotte fled, Sir Edward Denham arrived. His usual insouciance had deserted him. He appeared to be unraveling. Disheveled and flushed, he was apparently already half in his cups. Fetch me a drink, he barked to the passing footman. No half measures. Babington gave him a severe look. Sir Edward. Oh, God, Babington. I thought we'd seen the last of you. Tom Parker joined them, his countenance half anxious, half guilty. In the excitement over Lady Worcester's arrival, he'd almost forgotten his benefactress's plight. "'Tell me, how is your aunt, Lady Denham?' he said. Sir Edward let out a mirthless laugh. <laughs> "'Alive, if that's what you're asking. She is risen, Lazarus-like, from her deathbed.' "'But that is wonderful news!' The footman reappeared with a glass of champagne for Edward, who snatched it, draining its contents in one. "'Is it not?' he said, as he clicked his fingers for another. Although, sadly, it seems that while she was ailing, my sister was all the while dripping po poison in our aunt's ear, filling her mind with the most preposterous slurs about me, all in a cynical bid to steal my share of the inheritance. Those around them, whose inquisitiveness had been piqued first by Charlotte's novel opinions, and now by Sir Edward's indiscreet tones, gathered closer. "'That hardly sounds like the Esther Denham I know,' said Babington. Then you clearly have never seen the real Esther. The truth is, she's always been subject to hysterical delusions, but this time she's gone too far to think my own sister could misuse me. I'm heartbroken. Babington watched Sir Edward as he downed another glass of champagne as if it were water. He didn't look heartbroken to Babington. He looked furious, thwarted. If Esther had finally seen her brother for what he really was, his Babington's fortunes might be on the turn. He felt his heart lift. Down on the water, in the shade of the trees by the bank, Sidney and his companions were readying themselves for the race. Both sides of the river were now thronged with spectators, the hum of their excited chatter amplified by the water. Despite the air of anticipation, Babington's mind was elsewhere. He was still thinking about Edward Denham. What could he be... What could be the meaning of it? He wondered aloud. Hysterical delusions. Not one word of his account rang true. 
Crow, overhearing, threw him a disgusted look. Who cares, man? Concentrate on the job in hand. I have five pounds on us taking first place. Charlotte, who had by now resumed her organizational duties, hurried past them. Fifteen minutes, gentlemen, fifteen minutes. Oh, and good luck. Charlotte brightened at the sound of her voice. Sydney brightened at the sound of her voice, but when he looked up, realized she was addressing young Stringer. Chapter 34 The teams had assembled at the start line. One trio had even traveled from another resort, the Bridgeport Blades, who, to a man, were mustachioed and serious. They would compete against the Parker brothers, Crow and Babington, and Fred Robinson and Youngstringer, along with their coxes. The men took up their oars and boarded their boats. Charlotte, having counted them all in, made off gratefully towards the finish line. Out on the water, the teams jostled for position until a ragged approximation of a starting line was formed. In truth, only the Bridgeport blades looked poised and ready. The starting officer, having failed to light the rocket that was to begin the race, fumbled for his flag, and finally they were off. The crowd assembled on the banks, cheered that it was finally underway, and only a few minutes past four. Crow, who did not much care for honorable sportsmanship, immediately steered his and Babington's boat into the Bridgeport Blades, ruining their start. This proved a great advantage to young Stringer's boat, leaving them plenty of clear water to pull swiftly into. They gathered speed and took a narrow lead ahead of the Parker boat, which was hampered by Arthur's apparent inability to operate the rudder. Behind them, the Bridgeport Blades disentangled themselves from Crow and Babington and began to find their stroke, the margin between them and the Parker boat began, beginning to narrow. At the starting rocket as the starting rocket belatedly went off, tearing upwards with a screech, rowers and spectators started as one. Through sheer will and determination, young Stringer's boat kept the lead, the Parkers only just behind. The Bridgeport Blades, for all their dedication and willingness to travel, could not match them and had dropped behind. To everyone's surprise, not least the occupants, Babington and Crow's boat was moving up from last place and gaining on them fast. For a joyful minute they were ahead, but then the Blades found their rhythm again. "'They're gaining on us!' cried Babington. "'Bugger that!' returned Crow and steered once more into their path. In order to avert a collision, the Blades sacrificed an oar, offending not only their sense of fair play, but Babington's. "'Easy, Crow!' he exclaimed. His dismay only increased when he understood that their momentum was propelling them fast towards the riverbank, with no hope of avoiding the impact. Up ahead, among the leaders, Arthur took over the stroke and began to justify his place in the Parker boat. Ten hard strokes, he bellowed. That's it, Parkers. It was now a race of two boats. On the riverbank, close to the finish line, Charlotte and Mary, both rather breathless, joined Diana and Lady Worcester's crowd. It seems a curiously pointless exercise, does it not? Lady Worcester was remarking as the boats heaved into view around a bend in the, wind in the river. As if the virtue of a man were measured in how well he rose. Were that the case, I, could f I would find myself the nearest fisherman. Her friends laughed and Charlotte smiled. It faded when she noticed Mrs. Campion had sidled up. Feeling disheveled and hot next to her, she began to repin the strands of her hair that had worked loose. Miss Hayward? Mrs. Campion? 
Is that not my brother's boat? Is that not my brother's boat in the lead? Diana exclaimed over them. She was suffused with excitement. Oh, come on, Parkers! The revelers around them, heartened to have a view on proceedings now, also began to cheer. Mrs. Campion gave Charlotte a brittle smile. I do hope Sydney's boat comes in first. I have never seen the point of entering a race unless you win it. Charlotte did not reply. She knew only too well that Mrs. Campion was not referring to rowing or any other sport, at least an organized one. In the Parker boat, Sidney had discovered a peculiar kind of solace in the physical exertion of the race. It had stopped the constant tumbling of his thoughts. As he saw young Stringer's boat closing the gap between them, inch by certain inch, their oars perilously close as they drew level, he grunted and pulled harder, the muscles in his chest burning. But young Stringer was determined, too. The image of Charlotte was fixed in his mind as surely as Sidney's was blessedly empty. He was certain she would be at the finish line, which they were now fast approaching. The thought of her watching spurred him to a greater burst of strength than any the Parkers could match, and as the line rushed towards them, it was the foreman's boat that surged ahead to cross it first, though only by a mere foot. On the bank, young Stringer's father, generally not given to outbursts of emotion, threw his hat in the air. Diana pressed her hand to her heaving breast. Thank goodness that's over. My poor heart could not take another minute of it. Out on the water, the rowers were exhausted, the sweat running freely off them. Only the jubilant young stringer managed to stand. The spectators helped to pull the boats in and the men out of them. As they found their legs, the crowds parted, and they trudged towards the tent where refreshment awaited them. Not a bad effort, said old stringer to his son when he reached him. He was beaming, belying the gruff words. You proved yourself the equal of any man out there. Diana went forward to embrace and console her brothers, but Tom sought out Mary's eye. Seeing him so exhausted and bedraggled, she could not help but offer him a small smile. For now he was forgiven. Sidney, for his part, found himself between Charlotte and Eliza. All the blank respite of the river left him as, it had, as if it had never been. Sir Edward Denham had missed the race entirely. Having been quietly removed from Lady Worcester's vicinity for his ungentlemanlike behavior, he had repaired to the less salubrious surrounds of the Crown Hotel bar, where he had endeavored to get yet more drunk. Now, weaving along the street outside with no real purpose, he spied a familiar and most despised face. It was Clara Brereton in hat and Spencer, carrying a small and rather threadbare carpet bag, she was clearly on her way to meet the London coach. The vanquished enemy retreats, he slurred. Still admirably composed, despite her misfortune, she shook her head. I was never your enemy, Edward, and you are hardly in a position to gloat. He staggered a little as he tried to hold her eye. I am still a gentleman, and I have a title. All that you own is contained in that pathetic little bag. She put her head on one side, blue eyes laughing. You had one chance to secure your fortune, and you threw it away. I had nothing to lose. It was a game. A game you lost. All right, I will concede the first round, but we live to fight another day, do we not? She threw him another teasing look, and then turned on her heel, leaving him swaying in her wake, 
aroused despite his inebriation and despite his loathing for her. Their paths would cross again, he knew. The race over, the prizes handed out, the regatta drew slowly, and for many, regrettably, to its end. Tom was elated, floating on the soft cloud of unexpected success. He, Mary, and Charlotte were saying farewell to the woman who had been such a gift, Lady Worcester. "'Well, Mr. Parker,' she said, inclining her gracious head, "'I must thank you for a most invigorating day.' He resisted, embracing her. "'It is I who must thank you, ma'am. And if I might presume, I hope we might welcome you back to Sanditon again, perhaps for longer next time?' "'There is a distinct likelihood,' she smiled mischievously. "'I have one friend in particular who would be rather taken with the place.' Tom blushed and blustered. "'He—' He would be most welcome, of course, or, or she, whoever the gentleman is, I be, I, or lady. Lady Worcester stifled a laugh and turned to Charlotte, taking her aside. Goodbye, dear Charlotte. You mustn't lose heart. The race is not yet run. Thank you. I am more or less resigned to its outcome. My dear, when it comes to love, there is no such thing as foregone conclusion. She gave Charlotte a last smile and turned to be handed up into her carriage. Did you hear that, my dear? Tom said to Mary as the carriage moved off. One friend in particular. She can only have one person in mind. The Prince Regent himself. Sanditon has arrived. My regatta was a triumph. Indeed it was, my dear. Although it is entirely fair to call... Although is it entirely fair to call it your regatta? Given that it was Charlotte who persuaded Lady Worcester to attend, and that the regatta was her idea to begin with? Of course, of course. He turned to Charlotte and took her hand. This is as much your triumph as mine, dear girl. You are quite, you are a quite remarkable young woman. I bless the day you came to Sanditon. He turned back to his wife. Nor could have it happened without you, Mary, my dear. Why did I ever think to hide anything from you when you are my strength, my inspiration? What a fool I have been! Mary smiled, and it was the first full and true smile he had received from her in some time. His heart rejoiced at the sight of it. I promise you this much, he said, holding her in his arms. I shall never hide the, small, the smallest worry from you again. Miss Clara Brereton had been early for the coach, but after only fifteen minutes contemplating her new friendless life, she was engaged in conversation by a gentleman. It was Mr. Crow who, released from his rowing duties, had decided to return immediately to the more disreputable entertainments of London. Seeing her little bag and trim figure, he had made his approach in time to overhear her asking when the carriage would depart. "'Excellent question, my dear,' he said in a conspiratorial tone, suddenly at her elbow. "'How soon can we escape this infernal backwater?' She turned and gave, to him, gave him her most dazzling smile. "'Miss Brereton, is it not?' he said. "'This is a stroke of luck. I am headed to London myself.' But if I may, it would be quite unwise for an innocent like yourself to attempt such a journey alone. She lowered her eyes, knowing how well her long eyelashes would look fanned upon her cheek. Thank you for your concern, sir, she said softly, with the hint of a lisp. I must confess to a degree of trepidation. And tell me this, miss, do you have any friends in the city? None worth knowing, I'm afraid. A lupine smile spread across Crow's face. Well, you do now.
Sidney had been sitting alone in the tent where he had taken his time changing out of his wet rowing garb. His brothers and friends had long gone back towards the town along with everyone else, but he had not yet been able to rouse himself to follow. It was remarkable how quickly his thoughts had crowded in again now that the race was over. He stood and walked slowly out of the tent to find Eliza standing there. You had no need to wait for me. She looked at him intently. I have waited for ten years. What is another quarter hour? He dredged up a smile but could not formulate a reply. The truth, she went on hurriedly, filling the silence, is that now I have found you again, I can scarcely bring myself to let you out of my sight. She couldn't hold his eye then, and instead began to twist one of her rings around her finger. He couldn't remember ever seeing her so unsure. Eliza. I never lost hope that we would stand beside each other once more, she stepped towards him, eyes blazing. Yet here we are. Fate has gifted us with a second chance. It is almost a miracle. I lost you once before. I am not going to make that mistake again. Evening had stolen over Denham Place. Edward long gone, who knew where. Esther was alone except for the servants, who had almost finished packing up the house's contents. The home she had shared with her brother looked like a tawdry sort of place now, with their personal effects and pictures stripped away. She thought the sight of it so denuded would break her heart. A disturbance at the door made her breath catch. Could it be? But it was not Edward. It was Babington. "'I told you to refuse all visitors,' she said to the maid who hovered at the door. "'You may show Lord Babington out.' "'Wait!' cried Babington. "'I ask only for a moment. That is all. Miss Denham, I have done all I can to forget about you, but it is quite impossible. I feel I could spend a thousand years in your company and still not fathom you out. And yet, when I heard your brother speak of you today in the most derogatory terms, I felt I began to understand at last.' "'You know nothing,' she said coldly. "'I think you have been his prisoner for far too long. "'He alone has had the power to determine your self-worth, "'and he has abused that power in ways I can barely guess at it. "'Am I in any way close, Miss Denham?' "'To her inward fury, she began to weep, "'the tears she could no longer hold in rolling down her cheeks in a steady stream. "'Babington seemed to take in the disorder of the room for the first time.' He moved towards her. Miss Denham, dear Miss Denham, I do not know what has transpired, but I only hope this means you are free at last of his pernicious influence. I know you do not hold me in much esteem, but I came here without exception, and in the spirit of friendship, to make you a promise. Your brother is not going to make a victim of you. I will not allow it. He hesitated, and then brought out a clean handkerchief. For a long moment, she just looked at it. Then, just as he was about to give up and take his leave, she reached out for it. It was but a small gesture of acquiescence, but one Babington drew some hope from. Charlotte was alone in Tom's study. It was getting late, and the house was quiet, the children in bed and Tom taking a bath to soothe his aching muscles. She was holding a pile of receipts and other sundry papers, but could not think what to do with them. Indeed, her gaze had been fixed on the window for the last twenty minutes, though she could see nothing beyond the glass, the lamplight from the desk only throwing her own lonely reflection back at her. 
She wasn't aware of Sidney's presence in the room until he was almost upon her. Oh, she started. If you were looking for your brother. He stepped towards her. His eyes were dark and liquid in the low light. I am not looking for my brother. I am looking for you. I thought you and Mrs. Campion were heading back to London. She could not meet his eye. She has. I decided against joining her. She frowned in confusion. On reflection, I realized I would rather be here. He turned to go, and she found she couldn't speak, her thoughts too disordered. At the door, he paused. I am a good deal less than perfect. You have made me all too aware of that. But for whatever it is worth, I believe I am my best self, my truest self, when I am with you. That is all. With that, he walked out, leaving Charlotte entirely stunned, her heart lifting with unexpected joy, even as her more cautious mind wondered exactly what his words might signify.